Hello, good morning, and welcome to Genesis Insights from Genesis Asset Management. This is Mike Williams. Uh, thanks again for spending a few minutes with you, with us, sorry. Uh, so what do we want to talk about this morning? I think the big thing is um, we call it the if factor. Uh, if I had only done something, then X would be better. Uh, the thing that we want to point out today, though, is uh, this past weekend was... Uh, was the Woodstock for Capitalism. You know, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway had their big annual weekend event where they bring everyone together and shareholders and what have you. But I, I found the most fascinating little tidbit that came out of that is uh, many people realize that uh, Warren's partner at Berkshire Hathaway is uh, Charlie Munger. Charlie doesn't get as much press as Warren does and he's not as folksy and friendly sometimes, but uh, just as smart. Uh, when asked this weekend why in the world would they buy almost 11% of IBM and keep buying it even though the share price was down, uh, Charlie, in his usual effective way, had a pretty smart answer. Because the same person that asked why in the world they'd be doing it was the very same person who said, gosh, that's such a dumb move given that IBM is old and outdated and certainly behind the times, and of course I'm summarizing this quickly, but here's what Charlie's response was and how we can pick up on value listening to him. Quote, if people weren't so wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. Now I'm going to say that again because any investor can learn between the lines from that remark if you've studied history of these two gentlemen and the effects they've had for shareholders as investors in Berkshire Hathaway, which, for full disclosure, we are one. Charlie's response was, if people weren't so wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. So anyway, think about that as we go through a, a couple other notes here of importance this week. Uh, noise levels continue to increase as we light on one problem after the other, staying only for seconds at a time, it seems, these days. We go from one problem to the next. I mean, just in the past 90 days, I don't know if many even recall, we apparently a few months ago had an Ebola virus outbreak problem. I mean, do you remember how many news events covered every single patient notified that they had Ebola. Uh, you know, we had uh, massive concerns, even had the market correct for a week because Ebola may become a world-ending event. And of course, we don't even remember Ebola anymore. Uh, we, we seem to continue to leave one Armageddon event and move to the next faster than a gnat to a light source. And we kind of still wonder why the public consistently underperforms the markets. Well, look, the latest data is in, and a review of the last 20 years and the average mutual fund investors' results show yet again that uh, the process of being in the crowd is ineffective. And what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is that the public has again created a return in that 20-year period, less than 30% of what the actual market produced. In other words, if they had just stayed in place, 
rolled with the market, good or bad, up or down, treacherous times or non-treacherous times, they would have received over three times what they actually received. Now, we try to find the culprit so that we, like Charlie and Warren, can take advantage uh, for our clients' benefit uh, of public mistakes. You know, when you watch the mass and you watch the crowd, as Charlie says, if people weren't often so so incorrect, I think his comment was, if people weren't often so wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. So driving again on that theme, we continue to see advantages to take from the crowd's reactions. What do they do that causes them to consistently get less than 30% of what the market produces. Well, what they do is two primary actions that are forever um, negative to their returns, and that is this. They sell what is not working, sound familiar? And they buy what is working. Now, I want you to think in your mind's eye as you're driving along listening to this podcast, uh, what do you think a stock has done when someone says, I'm going to sell it because it's not working? Well, the odds are it's gone down because, of course, if it had gone up, people wouldn't say it's not working. So think of that for a second. I'm going to sell what's down, and then what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy what's working. Well, think in your mind's eye again. What do you think a stock has done if we would define that it's working well, it already rallied. It's already up. So we're going to sell something at a loss so we can buy something that we hope gives us a gain that's already up. That, my friends, is a quick route to getting less than the market actually produces. So look, no wonder the public feels safer in bonds. Remember, people don't remember this, but uh, just at the top of the tech bubble, Back in the year 2000, stocks were selling on average of 50 plus times earnings. We all remember that. We all didn't think how foolish it was. Of course, we didn't own tech, so our clients were okay. But uh, strangely enough, very few people thought at the time that that was dangerous. They bought 50 plus earnings in the NASDAQ, but they wouldn't buy 12 times earnings in the bond market. Now, people don't remember this, but a 30-year bond way back when, by the way, that was only 15 years ago, back then it, it served you up 8.5% or effectively 12 times earnings. And what does everybody want today? Well, they don't want stocks because those are too dangerous. I mean, we can see that by the billions and billions of dollars in outflows from mutual funds that we've already seen in 2015. That's just in a short four months. So there's only a third of the year up. And yet we have seen billions flow out of stocks because people are nervous again. You know what they're buying? They're buying bonds. But you know what, strangely enough, those very same bonds they didn't want back in 2000 currently sell for 50 times earnings. Ring a bell? You see, the public wanted 50 times earnings in stocks back in 2000, but they didn't want 12 times earnings in bonds. Today they're so petrified of stocks that snapshot forward 15 long years after two bear markets and they will fight for a 2% bond or 50 times earnings. They will take that 2% bond against 
a DuPont or a Xerox or a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi, all with yields exceeding that 2% bond. Strange, isn't it? I mean, don't get me started on how comically bad that is. But uh, I drive home the point again from Charlie Munger. If people weren't often so wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. So what is the reality today? Well, look, the last couple of months we have been told to be petrified of the earnings season. After all, crude oil has collapsed. Earnings in the sector's business, the, the oil sector of the market is down. Uh, I think they're down about 65%. Uh, so when you get 12% of the market to lose two-thirds of their earnings power, you can be assured there's going to be a dampening effect. But too many people have bought into that entire scenario as though it affects the entire market. Strangely enough, we were told that earnings would be down on the year. They're not. They're not up huge, but they're not down. Right now, they're up about 25 to 3%. And of course, the bears are going to tell you, oh gosh, that's just going to get worse as time goes on. I will tell you that the bears have said that for the last 10,000 Dow points. And yet even today, if I asked 100 people their biggest concern, about 75 of them would ask one simple question, Mike, when's the market going to crash next? So let's move on. I want to make you a, another quote here from a gentleman by the name of Seth Klarman. Uh, anybody who wants to Google him will find he manages billions of dollars in a very successful hedge fund and has consistently outperformed the markets. He was recently interviewed, and I was uh, amazed by one of his quotes. You see, hedge fund guys are usually perceived as these uh, quick-fire, hot-fingered, ridiculously, relentlessly risk-taking guys and uh, like us, they're not, uh, for the most part. Some of them are, and some of them lose a lot of money. Some of them hit on red or black and think they're geniuses. But Seth has got a long history of doing the right thing. He was asked this question in a series of questions. It was, what is the most important characteristic of the successful long-term investor? And everybody was waiting for a huge answer. And here's the answer. A long-term patient viewpoint. Imagine that, a hedge fund guy saying a long-term viewpoint is the most important characteristic to be a successful investor. You know, the older I get, the more crystal clear all this becomes. I suppose it would have been easier if we could have just known this 30 years ago, but here's the idea that we want to drive home. Every single thing we are fearful of today has actually unfolded already. Indeed, the last 30 plus years have seen every color of problem, disaster, economic event, and geopolitical sideshow that you can imagine. We've had natural disasters, we've had economic downturns, we've had multiple bear markets, we've had a secular bull market, and we've had people get um, negative results repeatedly to the point where they're scared of anything that says stocks. The result of all of that and all of those fears and all of those layered emotional problems that we now suffer through every time we have to decide what we're going to do and every new headline that scares the hell out of us, here's the thing. The result of all of that is that the market has risen 18 times over in the last 32 years. In 1982, it started when I did, 
in uh, in the summer of that year, the Dow was 970 in my first week. As I do this podcast for you today, it's 18,000. Now think about that. Each and every event that has scared us happened at a lower price. So one has to ask one's a question of yourself and you have to say each and every event which we deemed terrifying at the time has happened at lower stock prices. So what does that mean? Well it means something quite um, surprising to most and almost uh, blinded by the fears of the crowd but here is the fact. Since every event which we deem terrifying at the time has happened at lower prices, we have to arrive at this conclusion as discomforting as it might be. Opportunity was hidden in every single one of those setbacks. In other words, every single thing that has added to the layers of fear and the knee-jerk subconscious reactions that the crowd still has, every single thing they're afraid of, was a driver of fear while it was unfolding. It was a driver of sell first and ask questions later. But all of them happened at lower prices, driving us to one conclusion that we must accept going forward to take advantage of these errors. Remember, what it means is that opportunity was wrapped up and hidden in every single one of those setbacks we were afraid of. Every single one of those setbacks that caused us sometimes raging fear. So much so that we did stupid things. We sold at lows and walked away and watched thousands of points go higher in the market. And we're still afraid and we still get asked, Mike, when is the market going to crash next? Remember what Charlie Munger said. The next time you're afraid of something that the press or crowd tells you you should be afraid of. If people weren't often so wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. Let that sink in. Thanks for spending the time with us today. We look forward to sending you out the next episode. Have a great day. Thank you.